Hello, Dr. James K. Harris. Oh, hello, Dr. Nick Flores. How are you? I am well, all things considered. How are you doing? I am, I, you know, similarly, well, all things considered. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess that's really all we've got. Uh, you are listening to Learning on the Job, wherein <sighs> two recent-ish PhDs navigate the world of higher education, uh, ranging things from the tenure process, job market, uh, general anxieties uh, about being queer in the academy, but being queer of color in the academy, um, you know, all of the things. And this is us. I like it. I like the rundown. I like the explanation. I felt good about it. Now I feel grounded. I have a sense of what we're doing. <laughs> Great. So we like to start and begin the podcast with a check-in. And I have a question for you, James. Uh, how much joy did you let into your life this week? Oh, you know, for me, uh, I, I think a fair amount. I mean, you know, how does one quantify joy? But so like a decent amount. But what I found intriguing was like how what kind of joy it was. And it was sort of surprising to me in that like I found myself this week um, for the first time in a while, like writing and really liking the writing process and feeling really good inside of the writing and writing something that felt new and something that felt like, like I, I have been sort of kicking myself over this piece of a thing. And I finally like gave it over to my writing group and they said what I knew needed to be said, which was like, this is cool. You know, this is so obviously your dissertation and you can't just keep like, you have to, you have to be willing to let go of that and do a new thing. Um, and, you know, I feel like, I think a lot of people maybe feel that it was a thing that I'm very precious about in part because like it was so exhausting to produce, but also because it feels like it was so exhausting to produce and for an audience that was so small, <laughs> like the whole world could see this thing. But, and so I have to keep reminding myself that like, you know, writing is rewriting and it's okay to be excited about a different and a new thing. And so like, for me, this week has really been about like, reminding myself that part of why I chose this as a field was that I do actually like writing and that I could find it to be at times really rewarding and really sort of invigorating. And this was one of those weeks and I, and it couldn't have come a moment too soon because my God, did I need a week where I just got to feel good about the thing that is the lion's share of what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that you are now coming back into your writing groove how Dr. Harris got his writing group back is such a pleasure to hear. Amen. Um, I feel maybe a little less excited or less, there, there's not, there's pleasure in writing certainly. Uh, I am still struggling a little bit with that. I think because I'm still working through uh, the, the, kind of the long-term plan, right? So in, in terms of publishing, in terms of where I want pieces to go that I think, you know, part of that has to do with just like sitting down to write. Um, and so you, you can't know where you're going until you do it with writing anyway, I feel. Um, so I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. I, 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 yeah, I, 
think that I just in this moment always want to say something, but I you're on your own journey and you'll get there. And I have no doubt about that. But I do just want to remind you that, you know, I've, I've been here a little bit, just a little bit longer than you. So like, it'll come. I promise it's on its way. That moment where you feel like, oh, right. I think I have a map and I think I maybe am excited about doing this again. Because I think the entirety of the last year for me on top of the pandemic was also just like trying to map out like, okay, what am I doing? Like, what is this project? What are the parts of this project? Where are these pieces going to land and how do they all fit together? Um, and I think you're right that like, it's hard to do the macro micro thing at the same time. Like it's hard to both keep a sense of what is this individual piece of writing and what is the argument I'm making on page five. And then also like, what is the book project and who's gonna publish it where? And like, which is the journal that this needs to go into so that this can come out at this time. And it, it's hard to work in both those registers simultaneously. And yet that is the requirement of the job. And so like, it just takes, I think a good amount of time to get your head around. And if it feels like you're not quite wrapping your head around it, it's cause it takes a minute. Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you and I'm receiving what you're saying for sure. And I think that for me, I am uh, relearning the habits of what you've described in, in terms of like the pleasure of writing. Uh, I, as most, as, as most writers may feel kind of in their heads, I am no different. And I think that one of the things that I've been struggling with in particular is just like letting people read my work uh, and just getting, you know, feedback. And that is something that I need to get over. Uh, because as I was told by a dear mentor of mine in graduate school, uh, as well as mentors here at UIUC, you know, writing really is the collective endeavor. It's, it, it's a community. It, you, you join a community of writers, right? Like I'm not writing in isolation. The ideas that I have are not in a vacuum. I am in conversation with other people. Uh, and I remind myself of that because um, I'm actually a great conversationalist. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I feel very seen by all of that. Like, it's absolutely true that like, yeah, it's easy, I think, as academics, because our work is so solitary to feel very isolated and very precious about our ideas and to be very, cons like, you know, reluctant to let other people see them and to let other people weigh in on them and and it can be so liberating to just sort of like, that's what I've really loved about like the writing group that I'm a part of now. The structure of it really is just like every week we come together, every two weeks we come together and sort of like for about an hour, you just kind of sit back and hear what people heard when they read your work and you don't get to respond. You're just sort of absorbing. And it's a really fascinating, challenging opportunity to be reminded that like writing like literature is such a sort of cooperative process, right? It's a thing that writers and readers create together in the moment. And so just mm -hmm. as much as you're joining a community of writers, you're also like writing to a reader and you want to sort of be aware of what that. And so it's it's been really nice to be a part of like that process and to feel like I'm to feel like I'm doing it in a way that feels like I'm sort of like playing at the height of my skills using talents that I've acquired over time, as opposed to sort of rehearsing the same lessons over and over and over again. Mm. Two things. First, thank you for sharing what you know, letting joy in. Uh, and two, for expounding and kind of elaborating on what joy looks like for you and what it feels like. And I appreciate that. So, I'm happy to do it, but you know, same question back at you, friend. How are you letting joy into, how have you let joy into your life in the last week? So I need a lot of structure. Um, update from, uh, I'm doing this boot camp program all semester and 
you know, I'm doing weekly plans and I'm checking in every week with my accountability group and it's been wonderful. It, it's less so sharing writing, but more so just checking in about, you know, things like what went well, what didn't go well, meeting goals, not meeting goals, why, uh, but which is, which has its own utility, I think, in, in, for me. Um, and one of the things that I've been uh, be, being more disciplined with myself is, is, is the schedule, is a schedule. Um, again, like I just said, I need a lot of structure. And so, you know, I've been mapping out my days uh, and then um, I actually get a lot of pleasure in that in in mapping out, but, but really it's like um, the white space in between the things that I'm learning to appreciate more and I'm actually making more room for. Um, so the kind of white space on my calendar, for instance, um, because I'm released from teaching this semester, uh, you know, I wake up when I wake up, it isn't always super early and I, I start writing. This is what, this is what I have to do. Um, and then, you know, I spend some time uh, with, with the various writing projects, which have been mapped out for the week. Um, and then I do some workout and then I do a little, um, like research, you know, so that can mean, you know, reading parts of a monograph or journal articles, uh, maybe touching the writing again a little bit. Um, but I'm trying to cut myself off at a reasonable time before dinner. Um, and so I've really been reclaiming my, my evenings and I'm trying to kind of leave those open, um, and also feel less guilty about not doing things in the evening. Um, and so that's been the form, one of the forms of joy that I've had uh, is, is both the scheduling, but then like really starting to appreciate uh, the kind of the unplanned um, because I'm, I, I, I tend to be, I, I tend to over plan. And so that actually is a way that I don't do things. It, you know, the, it's a kind of an internal resistance, if you will, is that I'll spend so much time making the plan that I then don't execute it because I've spent so much time doing it and then tweaking it and then just kind of going back to it without actually doing the work. So trying to find that balance. Um, I love that for you. I love that for you. I love balance. I love a sort of holistic life spent getting all the parts of yourself into focus in their own way. That's great. Yeah, also, and I'm very like privileged and fortunate. I get to, right? Like I'm, I, I get to do that this, this, especially this semester. Um, and, and that's true and that's real. But as you say that, I mean, it's also important to hold on to like, it is privilege, but it is dangerous to get so consumed by the sort of need to be working all the time, right? That like when I, I remember one of the things and maybe I said this before, but like one of the things that always sticks out in my mind is like I had a professor in grad school who said that like, it is so difficult to give an accounting of our time in this job because we're sort of like just left to our own devices and then we have to come back and sort of explain where we were and so there's this imperative to just always be making yourself busy and like the pressures we put on ourselves to constantly be doing more because there is no rule about what enough actually is and so like knowing how to take the sort of space to say like, this is an appropriate hour to stop working and to accept that I have done enough if I make it to this time and to not punish myself for not doing more is I think like really mature and important. Certainly, and as a masochist, it's really difficult sometimes to not get in those <laughs> modes in those grooves because it's like, ooh, I like to punish myself. Well, and the reality that, is like, I... this is a field that rewards you for a certain amount of that. Like if you're a person right. who wants to produce like, you know, a book every year, like you will get all the prizes and all the awards and all the invitations to speak, but also like, you'll never see your friends. Right. And, you know, it's, we're in a pandulce, so I'm not seeing anyone. You know, um, 
and I can't wait. Um, but anyway, so we, we've we've belabored, I think, the check-in. Um, I think listeners are have, have, have had enough, uh, as it were. Um, <laughs> on to the on? real business of why we're here, which is what? <laughs> right, there you, you go. You got me, you got me, you got me. I like urgency. It makes me feel like we're going somewhere. It's not even like urgency. Next <laughs> section, next section. <laughs> I'm in. Let's do it. Okay, so now we, we we move on to a segment that we call "Failing Better," and it is inspired by Beckett's quote that you know by heart and that I do not. But my takeaway is that you you yeah no I'm leaving you, you here on better. your own and I'm not going <laughs> to explain it. Of course, it's waiting for Godot. It's ever tried, ever failed. No matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Uh, and it, I'm you sick know, of you. To have seen Waiting for Godot is to know that that quote means everything and nothing. Did I, did I just say, did you, did you hear me? I'm I'm just, I'm sick of you. I chose Um, not to hear you. (laughs) Cool. Cool, 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 cool. So how are you, what are you thinking about failing better this week? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I'm torn between my desire for us to stay in our very underexplored lane where we do have so much to say about like higher ed and how higher ed is working, but also like my my insistence that we be whole selves and that we take seriously that we're not just academics, we're bodies that live in the world. And so in that sense, all I've been thinking about is I think all the world's been thinking about this week, which is like the failing better of impeaching that creature the second time. Uh, and just like sort of relitigating what justice is supposed to mean and what 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 the point of this conversation is and what, you know, like the why of it all feels to mm-hmm. me so existentially hard to wrap my head around. So I think I've been sort of stuck there with it outside mm-hmm. of the work that I think I've been out all of my panic that isn't just panic about the state of higher ed, which I think we'll get to in a minute, uh, is just like, and also what, what even, what even is America anymore? Multiple Americas, right? There are, and they seem to be growing every day. Um, I, I appreciate that you are kind of signaling this idea of the, the more existential or the more, the, what, 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 I think are maybe the more urgent questions that, that I think we're grappling with a la impe- impeachment, a la, you know, um, how people are interpreting it, um, what kind of actions are being taken, both on the, the part of politicians and legislatures, uh, legislators in the legislature, uh, as well as, you know, the, 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 the action and sometimes inaction of people now, right? Like, I think it's, for, for me, I, I, this is the first time I think um, over the past at least two years um, that I have not been actively following um, and that I'm just kind of getting the recaps in the evening um, because based on what news and news outlets are saying, you know, it, 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 it seems unlikely that he will be uh, convicted. And so it's really difficult to kind of put myself through, you know, hours and hours of, of um, anxiety. It, it, it would be, it's so easy, I think. And so, you know, I've been, and, and, and I haven't been not 
following it because, or not actively following it because I, I'm trying to be better or I'm trying to like, you know, not, it's just, I, I think I'm starting to realize that, you know, the decisions that will be made do affect us and they will affect us in, in ways that we may be able to describe and then more ways that we cannot know, right? And so I think that I'm getting to a point in my life where I'm, I'm letting the kind of the dynamism of the everyday lead me. And so, you know, I'll lead, I'll lead with, with, with coping with things as they come, as opposed to kind of perpetually being in this state of worry, like this worry wart state, because that's, that just doesn't help. Um, and I, and I, and I think that that's, you know, there's been a somewhat of a release and relief of that uh, over the last few weeks. And so I'm just trying to, trying to be in that mode. And so, yeah. Um, who knows what'll happen um, ultimately, right? But I, that's a shit show. I love that for you, really. I love your checked outedness. I and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I wish that I could like meaningfully not. Care. I I'm too busy trying to figure out how to weaponize America's conspiratorial impulses to help Black and Brown people. Um, and I can't figure out quite what that looks like, but it does seem to me that if we could convince the people who think they hate Black people that the CIA is poisoning their water, we might be able to use them to do some kind of good. And I'm too, I'm like, and so I find myself nestling further and further inside of just like, you know, like today, here we are on uh, Friday, so the last day of the thing that will be the trial. And it looks like the the defense is gaslighting like it's just like we didn't mp we didn't start an insurrection you started an insurrection and so it's just like videos of democrats being like we need to win this election and then the argument goes see they said to go and attack and it's it's such an insane gesture of just like anti-truthness like it's it is it's impressive at a level that rather than being angry, I'm genuinely trying to figure out how to mobilize this to do something useful. Cause it is a dizzying strategy of just like, I'm the rubber, you're the glue. And it feels <laughs> like it shouldn't work when you're not five, but here we are. Truly, I, you know, that's, that's such a fair assessment. And the, 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 the little that I have been following um, it, when I get caught up in the evenings, is 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 certainly that, and I think major news outlets are are identifying that, um, are identifying this kind of this flip flop of um, the switching back and forth, and kind of this jujitsuing of okay, but of but energy. not to cut you off. But here's the problem, right? Like major news outlets are being watched by no one. I'm not watching them. You're not watching them. The people who we're worried about are all watching One American News or they're getting their news from YouTube. So it's like, I appreciate that the adults in the room who created the monster are now looking at the monster and going, oh, this was too much. Y'all should probably stop looking at the monster. But it's like, well, <laughs> CNN, you spent four solid back-to-back -back years telling us to pay attention to this and nothing but this. So like insisting now that this is irrelevant seems to me like it misunderstands exactly how we got here, but also like, what's at stake and I just feel like a conversation that doesn't take seriously like the utility of this kind of like political gaslighting across the spectrum like it's it's it is of a piece with the way that Joe Biden is now out here acting like $1,400 checks is what he said all along it's like gaslighting has become the order of the day we just figured out how to mobilize it 
To be sure, yes, to be sure, it is happening. The gaslighting is happening on both sides, and it's been happening on both sides. You know, and I'm not on, saying like all, we're all, all evil sides, and we're all, all equally culpable in this at all. I mean, there's only one Nazi out here trying to get you to overthrow sure. government elections. But like, there is, I think, a more compelling argument to be made about like why this country is so susceptible to this kind of stupidity and hatred. There's like, there's so it's it's not a bug, it's a feature. And I feel like we're still not taking that seriously. Like we keep insisting that like, if we just punish it, then we'll be able to like hold on to what's bad about it. And we can shake that part out and we can keep the rest of the GOP. And it's like, I don't know, man, it feels like maybe this, this, is, is, this is what it is. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, and maybe rather than being mad about what it is, we need to figure out how to evacuate the stupid from it and just like mobilize it to be, if you're gonna be conspiracy theorists, I got a conspiracy theory for you. The CIA gave crack to black people. <laughs> I don't think that's a conspiracy theory as much as it is a fact. Hey, come on. So uh, additionally, you know, between those two things? the United States of America needs and a good cleansing, either a smudging or a not as not even a, we need like a colonic cleanse. We need something. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of a riff, I'm trying to riff off of like this is like the fabric. So I'm trying to figure out a best the the, the best I metaphor. I guess maybe I'm just like <sighs> I feel so, like so I... so how so okay so I guess my my rejoinder to you might be what what have you been speculating as in terms of strategies for mobilizing this, right? So certainly, like, I think you gave a response about if you can convince uh, the the people who believe the Nazi that the FBI is, would you say they're poisoning the water or something that we might be able to mobilize that side. But, but you know, I, I mean, I can sit here and yeah, yes, like we can talk about that. But also, you know, I'm, I think for me, the reason I'm asking is because, you know, there are outlets that I think you and I have, um, particularly with our teaching, that I think for me is is what I've always, I've always had an eye to, you know, how do I incorporate what's happening now uh, to give language, not only to it, but also maybe strategizing what that looks like um, for our students or for people who we encounter, right? So I guess, I guess my question is, you know, what are some maybe, or have you thought about kind of, Kind of tangible things that you might think could be mobilized no i mean i guess i have i think endlessly about it i haven't come up with anything that i think effectively does what i'm after which is like both the critical thinking work of unpacking what about this argument is sort of facetious and then the sort of double turn of then mobilizing that facetiousness in service of the thing that you're after i mean i think it works in hyper specific instantiations right there are lots of individual utterances of the moment you could point to but like how do you turn it into a sort of teachable skill that you can give someone i have i mean you know i have no sense of what that looks like except to sort of counter read texts as they as we encounter them in the world or to sort of think back against push back against what is at least among my students for example like a growing skepticism about covid vaccines right like mm -hmm. this didn't come from nowhere and so figuring out where it came from but also like extending the logic of okay if you believe this then what other kinds of things also become available to believe um seems like one strategy for sort of like forcing the point of using the the sort of conspiratorial nature of conservative thinking against itself but at the end of the day i mean you know it's of a piece with the way i feel about a lot of like 
the world's more famed sort of panacea, which is that like conspiracy theories work because they're stupid answers to very complicated problems. And like, mm. as long as that remains true, I don't, I don't know how to deal with the because I mean I think the one of the things I like about the world is that it's full of very complicated problems, uh, and we've arrived mm. at the moment where that's our greatest issue. So, like, there's no space to deal with complexity. Word, I, I, I think you've summed it up uh, right there at the the end here. It's you know it's it requires a lot of energy, right? To, to, to really sit down and to unpack and to work through and to get uncomfortable, right? From multiple positions, right? Everyone perhaps is, is uncomfortable in this moment, right? Either socially, politically, culturally, historic, whatever, whatever may have you. And, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, I'm, when you said that, it made me think of, you know, teaching again, right? Like, you know, um, and kind of curtailing teaching style in the pandemic, but also even pre-pandemic, right? Like, am I giving too much reading? Am I, am I, you know, presenting too many kind of complicated, complex ideas in a way that, you know, students or people receiving the information are understanding, right? Because I mean, there's like multiple, you know, there's multiple scales here. It's like, I have to understand it. And then I have to translate that or communicate that so that they understand it. But then, you know, there are objects that, are also a, a part of this, you know, this equation, and those things kind of have their own lives, right? The object here being either text or, you know, um, some kind of tangible object, and sometimes not tangible object, right? So how do we make sense of all of these moving parts and at these different scales? Um, seems to me like you know, I think the 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 problem, not the problem, but uh, certainly a challenge of of the profession of of the profession of of that you and I, I think do take to task uh, both with ourselves and with our students, right? We don't, we're not interested or invested in, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, producing uh, and reproducing people who simply want to just get by, right? We, we're interested in like people who are invested in critical thinking skills and who can uh, under their own circumstances maneuver themselves in ways that are hopefully helping other people, helping themselves and helping other people. And by virtue of the type of students that I think that we have, helping other people actually does mean helping low income and or people of color or those historically kind of disenfranchised, right? I think, uh, I think maybe yes. I'm being too generous. But I think all of that, yes, I think that for sure. And so, yeah, so, it's- So it's, I want to acknowledge that I think, I guess, I guess that's where I'm coming. That's what part of what I'm trying to get at here is that, you know, we, we are, because we're in the, I feel like we are in the trenches. We're in not the same, we're maybe not in the same trenches as, you know, the state and kind of federal legislature, but like we're in different trenches that are, that are equally as important, I think, because there's anti-science, there's anti-intellectualism in this country that has like always been present, certainly, but it seems to really be coming down, um, doubling down, uh, as it were, both on institutions of higher education, but other sectors as well. That couldn't be more true. And it honestly couldn't be a better segue into our next segment, Disingenuous Arguments. 
uh, wherein we sort of like, you know, the world is full of bad faith actors making bad faith claims. And normally it's just not worth the time. But in this segment, we have the time. And so we take the time to unpack sort of like just a, a, a bad faith piece of nonsense that seems to be floating around the world. Um, and this week's is sort of revolving around this question of like, higher education and what it means to invest or divest in sort of like higher ed as a whole where we place our priorities as a culture and a society. Uh, it's, it's the University of Kansas. Uh, so in case you haven't heard, of course, we'll drop the information in the show notes, but University of Kansas, uh, the Board of Regents recently got together and decided that, you know, because of these unprecedented times that we've all been living in there, so without precedent, uh, they're going to go ahead and create a new sort of like a uh, two year stopgap where they will allow the, the sort of board of directors to go ahead and fire anybody they need to, to make whatever budgetary sort of cuts they need to make. And that can include tenure faculty, not tenure track, already tenured faculty uh, of, for like up to the next two years. And so rightly, everybody and their mom is freaking out. Uh, and so we'll also drop in the show notes, the link to the sort of the letter that I think at this point has something like 6,500 signatories, including every professional organization you could think of in higher ed. They're all just like, this is um, every conceivable version of unacceptable. And it is every conceivable version of unacceptable, but it's also, it's just so shockingly a part of this conversation about like, you know, the argument they're making here is one about budget. And the argument they're making is that we simply don't have the money to be able to afford to pay for colleges in their current capacity. And it's, it, it, <laughs> and I'm, I'm undone by just like the staggering shit priorities of this country. And like our, every, I mean, it feels like I'm old enough to remember when we were all out here in the streets screaming over our right to maybe have medicine if we get sick. It just feels like all day, every day, like every five years we come out and give billionaires a tax cut or we actually just bail them out because they've created messes. And there's no amount of failure that's too much for us to not like pick capitalism back up and dust it off and give it another go. But like, the actual people who might benefit from like the policies of a government are so consistently left behind in ways that I find disheartening and shocking. And I can't, I mean, it, it, it's inconceivable that anyone on this board of regents could imagine that the correct answer to the budgetary crisis facing this college is, well, they should just have fewer faculty. Like that's how you fix a school you don't need faculty. It's just like, it, and so it raises the real question of what is it you're actually trying to do here? And it feels like a part of it is this sort of like desire to punish intellectual academic spaces for being sort of like bad actors of political sort of being the kinds of places that indoctrinate students, being the kinds of like bad faith spaces where like, you know, like liberals are run amok. And it's a part of a like, we want to divest from that kind of attitude, butting up against an unwillingness to invest in any form of public infrastructure that can't be used to like put a brown person in a cage or blow up a building. And it just feels both infuriatingly unsurprising because it's Kansas, but also just like, yeah, I mean, it's Kansas today, but it's all the rest of us if this works. And that I think is the, the biggest concern because um, they're coming for all of us. Right. It's not it starts here. It starts small or it starts at one place and then it like wildfire will catch on or like the coronavirus, you know, it'll mutate and have different variations across different university systems. Uh, the, the, the kind of final line to uh, round out what you just said, it, this is the bottom line and this is the final line in the article. Right. It said 
uh, the policy transforms every member of the university's instructional faculty into, quote, the precariat, end quote, right? So what that means is tenured, non-tenured, everyone, right, is, is now a part of this. You're on the chopping block. And it all under this austerity measures, right, that to be sure have only been exacerbated by the pandemic, but have certainly been around since at least 2007, 2008, when the, the kind of large financial crisis, right, where you described bailing out the billionaires um, and Wall Street. Um, and the kind of logic or the reason or the rationale that is given is, well, we have yeah, precisely your point, you know, just cut, cut education. Um, and, you know, certainly like what is happening in Kansas will look very different in New York, will look very different in Illinois, will look very different in California. But certainly I think that there are um, measures, these kind of austerity measures, or this privatization too, I think is also part of this conversation here, right? Where in, for example, public institutions, you know, you and I were at Ohio State uh, for graduate school, and I'm never going to forget when they privatized parking. That was oh. like, that was, that was oh, such a girl. issue, right? Because, you know, if it starts with parking, then it's only a matter of time. And, and certainly behind the scenes, there's so much private kind of financing that happens. Uh, but but really to kind of privatize all of it, it, it's just like other indicators or signals of precisely these kind of measures that allow, you know, the, this kind of this company, for instance, this uh, this company at OSU that the, the, the parking campus right, to park was it campus park. Right, I only like, know that because you know, I have enough tickets to like line wallpaper a room in my house. Right, and are those workers being paid livable wages? Probably not. Are they? <laughs> no, those tickets benefits? go to no. pay for the meters. So, you know, I mean, so not to not to get too far off from the the conversation at hand in terms of the the measures by the Kansas uh, Board of Regents um, is. No, but I mean, it's all about peace, right? It's this yeah, idea I mean, it's that all... the college is a business and that the business's responsibility is to maximize profits. Like that was what the campus park fight was about. Like the college had parking spots. They had been having parking spots forever. But somebody came along and said, we can administer these more efficiently and make you more money on them. And it doesn't matter if what that means in practice is like, it's going to be less convenient for the students. They're going to have to move their cars more regularly. There's going to have less access. We're going to be able to like lock off the parking lot at certain points of the weekend. Like we're going to raise the prices, but also lower the amount of service you're getting but it works from an efficiency standpoint and so the mm -hmm. college did it because that's sort of the model of like college as business and student as customer and it's like you see the same thing happening at university of kansas and part of what's so shocking about that is that as with ohio state well part of what's shocking there is that it's the whole school and not just parking but also like it's supposed to be a public school and so it's like mm -hmm. if even the public schools have become this sort of like hybrid of privatization and also just like cutting 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 so like e anything that can't be outsourced just has to go like if if they can't survive then what's what's left becomes a further exacerbation of income inequality there will remain college in america harvard's doing great nyu is doing great carnegie mellon is doing great like, like there will always be schools for people who can afford $80,000 a year for tuition. What's at stake is school for everybody else. Definitely. And you know, like, um, as you were, you were talking, this reminded me of Rod Ferguson's The Reorder of Things, um, in which he does a, in a genealogical um, exploration of, of higher education, but, but particularly the disciplines that emerge out of the 1960s. Um, ethnic studies, women's studies, 
LGBTQ studies, right, that are all kind of associated with the, with the moment in the mid 20th century, um, wherein he describes uh, and kind of, again, uh, unpacks this, this triangulation between kind of public education, the state and private interests, right? And how these things kind of collide, uh, kind of collide, but also work through, work with one another in tandem vis-a-vis uh, -vis the university, right? And that, um, there's, there's, there's something to be said here about uh, all of these varying interests that I, that I think we're supposed to be told are actually divorced from one another, but in fact, they're all working in the service of each other, right? Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, it, it's shocking in Kansas, but it's also, as you mentioned, not surprising, but the, what that stake here is like, will this, is this just like the first domino, right? Um, I mean, because we could also think and talk about what happened uh, to the University of Wisconsin and that system, right? With with the tenure there. So, I mean, th and there are you, iterations I mean, you know, of You this. said what happens in Kansas will be different than what happens in New York and that's true, but also New York has its own version of like, we've already started cutting adjuncts left and right. Uh, we've already started hiring freezing left and right. So it's like the, the, the cuts are not, they're real, they're material. And they are mm -hmm. not just like the kind of administrative, they are everything but the administrative fluff that has dragged the university down into the muck it's currently in. And it's a little bit like, I mean, you know, like uh, it all swirls around in my head as of a piece. It feels like it's like watching the impeachment trial. And it's like, well, how in mm. the fuck is this Senate supposed to, like half of them are the problem. How are they gonna fix it? And it's like, I feel the same way about higher ed. It's like the administration is the issue. Like, unless they're all willing to fire themselves, the problem's not getting solved. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, Certainly. I mean, we could compare, especially with at public institutions, we could compare salaries, right? And see precisely where the money is going, where the raises are going. And proliferation um, of hires. Like over the last decade, who's have we hired teachers to teach these classes? Or have we just hired like an army of people to run the new office we have to do this and the new center that does that? And it's like all shit students don't care about, don't know they can access, don't ever really use, and like are spending an arm and a leg for. Yeah, I mean... And I think you're you're right. I think to observe that I, I'm sure every state has um, every state in the United States where there's a public land grant institution, land grab institution, right? I mean, because that's also a context here that we've not kind of addressed, and that is, you know, the that all of all of our public institutions are on stolen land, right? Um, is is this that there are these iterations of these austerity measures that are already happening and taking place um, that are happening behind closed doors that are happening, you know, that only emerge or only that we only see after the fact. Um, right. And to be clear, not all, not like all austerity is the name we give to the violences we do to poor people. Like there are all kinds of things we could conceivably cut that we have chosen not to cut. What we've chosen to cut are the kinds of programs that would primarily benefit the kinds of students who are the most edge case for being able to access these institutions to begin with. So it's things like, you know, at advanced writing center support. It's things mm -hmm. like uh, added tutoring hours. It's things like, it's all the kinds of things that like, we assume the that if you need this, maybe you shouldn't be here to begin with. Right. And the courses and the faculty that identify with and or the students see themselves in, right? Like the, those are also what is being cut. Right. Um, and so like they're calling it austerity because that sounds better. But what they really mean is like, you know, a recalibration of what kind of person the university cares to serve. And I 
make a, I just have a, a quick thing to add in. I don't know that, I don't, I didn't see austerity. I kind of used that phrase. Um, so it may not actually No, I'm be sure that, that the school is though. The school um, is in another way of like another of the letters they sent out were about like how the $74 million of cuts at one right. specific school were an austerity measure. I'll take your word for it. But also, I mean, it just, in my mind, it all is linked, right? That doesn't seem to be as complicated. It like it's outright what you've just described. It's like, you're either going to, you're going to cut the faculty, you're going to cut the programs that would actually help the brown kids, the black kids, the um, first generation college. First generation, that, 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 that's, yeah, that population, those populations for sure. Uh, and then, and then, so all of this under the guise of financial hardship under the pandemic, right? Like who knows what the effects of the pandemic will be. In, I mean, we have, I think maybe we have a, a better sense, right? We can't know for sure what kind of measures will be taken, but if it's anything like what is happening now, you know, I mean, we weren't even fully recovered from the financial collapse in 2007, 2008, and then this happens and it just seems again, exacerbated. And so who knows what kinds of ethos emerges out of this and what kind of further measures are gonna be taken and whether or not even, you know, tenure will be around. You know, I think the, I, <laughs> I think about this endlessly that like it all, I can't, my heart breaks for these people in part, it just like as a, as a personal note, like I cannot imagine how next level infuriated I would be if I go through this entire process to get to tenure and then I'm comfortably sitting in my tenure for like three or four years and the school decides, ah, actually fuck it, tenure's not a thing, we can fire you. It's like, I, the depth of the betrayal, because like imagine how much labor you do, like invisible work you do for the college that you do on the promise that at the end of this, we will have an agreement. Like we will enter into an arrangement that will benefit both of us mutually. Like I'm, I, I love this school, I really do, but I'm not doing this for my health. Mm. Like you can't ever get that time back. You can't ever get those years back. Like those people, every single one of those tenured people have looked at and turned down an opportunity to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, betrayal. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I have any words. I would, I would be gone the next week. The, like that would be the day that I started putting out my letters. Whether you change this policy or not, I won't be here for the other side. Mm. And on that very, so break? you know, the kind of note I can make when I don't work there. Yeah. Take a break. <laughs> good about being back back again back at it back against the wall back that ass up i miss being sweaty and i'm so you know it just dawned on um, me like i was listening to cardi b's new song and i realized we never got to experience wap in the club i missed the club so i never thought i would miss the club i missed the club I miss the club so much. Oh, in man. the club, we were all fam. We're all fam in the club. <laughs> uh, so we are back and we've got a few more segments. Uh, short. Um, 
And the first of which is, you know, we'd like to ask each other a few questions. And the first one I will go to James and it is, what are you thinking about these days? What are you thinking? Uh, okay, so, you know, I'm thinking about my job and teaching and doing my job responsibly and all that jazz. Uh, and I'm thinking about how we should all be our most responsible and most generous and earnest selves and all that jazz. Uh, and then yesterday, my sister sent me a text and she was like, what's, wait, what's Lady G? And I was explaining Lady G to her. And she was like, is that? Is that homophobic? Are we allowed to do that? Wherein I think we mean like straight people. Uh, and so just for the uninitiated, Lady G is the nickname that people on the internet have given Lindsey Graham, Senator from uh, South Carolina, because allegedly, allegedly, Lindsey Graham pays male sex workers, uh, like a lot of male sex workers in the sort of greater South Carolina area. And he goes by the pseudonym Lady G. And so last year during the election, one of the alleged sex workers came forward and was like, hey, I'm out here and this is definitely my truth. And if this is also your truth, let's all band together because he can't deny all of our stories collectively. Uh, so use the hashtag Lady G just so he knows that we know about his secrets. And so I don't know, like there's been a certain corner of let's be real woke white gay Twitter that's like, oh my God, don't oh. call him Lady G. That's so homophobic. And I just want those people to sit down and shut up and be quiet and let us have our fun. We will call that man whatever we want and you will let us. Uh, truly. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that some of the stories are wild that I've read about. Yeah. Uh, the, they're the so good. Work. They're so good. And, and if it, all you get out of it is that you Google it so you can hear the stories for yourself. That's what I want. Like, so, so, so the idea that it's somehow homophobic to point out that Lindsey Graham is in the long tradition of specifically like white male Republicans who espouse a kind of anti-gay, anti-trans politic and then use their platform to out, go out of their way to make life aggressively shittier, not just for like queer people, not just for trans people, but specifically for Lindsey Graham's case, like for sex workers with the passing of SESTA, right? Like they're, they have made it a point to seek these people out and to target these populations. And so the idea that you potentially, allegedly, are like so profoundly engaged in a community that you go out of your way to hurt. Just can't go without mentioning. And like, I don't know, man, I get that there are standards for truth and journalism and all, but like that doesn't seem to me the same as all of us on the internet agreeing that we know. So when the story breaks, we can all be like, oh, we've been new. Told you so. Told no, you sure. so a decade mm -hmm. ago. Right. Um, yeah, I, and that, that's so funny. I wonder what prompted your, what did you say? What prompted your sister to send that? Has I it think she saw someone saying it on the, oh yeah, no, it's back because of an impeachment. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Because he was like on the internet saying something about how like we can't impeach him. Uh, it doesn't truly, I don't care. Uh, and and all that really came of it was people being like, shut up, Lady G. And then like a couple, you know, you're Dan Levy's, a couple of just like the white gays being like, um, excuse me, we're not doing that. And me just being like, yes, we are. No, we're doing that. We're going to call that yeah. man whatever we want to call him. And he's going to sit right there and listen. Or retire like we'd all, you know, or not. In which case we will continue to call him the name. Like, I, wait, did, it feels wait, like it misunderstands. Go. Dan was Dan Levy one of the people who? Oh yeah, no, specifically yes. Yeah. Oh, 
that breaks my heart. Um, I mean, I really but are you surprised? I'm not. Su- no, I'm not surprised, but it hurts. That the white gays I, do white gays I, things. I, there it is. Because the take um, was truly just like, oh, this ain't it. And like, I appreciate right. what you're saying. I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we yes, it is. This is also it. This like, is what we're doing. You're understanding. Yeah, you're kind of limited understanding, limited and limiting understanding through the through like the refracting of like your white gay lens is just it's oppressive. Also, the idea that the violence that I don't know, it just feels so like wrong. It feels so wrong. Right. It feels like it so completely misunderstands what's interesting about calling Lindsey Graham Lady G. Lady like G. the idea isn't like, oh my God, he's effeminate. Let's make fun of him. I don't care if he's effeminate. I don't care that he fucks dudes. I care that he's out here passing anti-sex worker legislation while an army of sex workers in South Carolina are like, girl, you ready to drop dime? Let's. <laughs> let's do it. Um, Yeah, no, for sure. There's, there's kind of a... There's a, I, I wish I was a poet because then I would be able to maybe better use words to describe the the excitement that that is this story in particular. Um, fascinating. I mean, I, I'm I'm aware of the Lady G conversation, but I was oh unaware of this this piece about um, the weaponization of Lady G as a as a homophobic so the new, slur. The new White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, apparently like called him Lady G at some point before she was White House press secretary. And now oh. conservatives are all up in arms being like, oh my God, she used a homophobic slur. Are y'all gonna be okay with this? To which again, this, this I This actually respond, goes back to that logic that you were talking about earlier, like this, this- The gaslighting, the, the gaslighting. Gas Can we please? So sit down, Lady G, take five. Sit down. Wow. Um, what you thinking about, friend? So in a very similar vein, I think there was something that resurfaced that happened at the beginning of this year. Um, again, for those uninitiated, uh, there was an Instagram account uh, known as Gays Over COVID. And the basic premise was that this was an anonymous account that was exposing different gays, primarily white gays, uh, and gays who are involved in like the healthcare field, right? So nurses, uh, among others, um, who were kind of going and basically living their lives, their circuit party lives, as if there was no, there were no consequences that, you know, they were somehow kind of unaffected by um, the global pandemic. And it kind of came to the fore back in January when, December, January, when, uh, a group of people went to a a, a, a party in uh, Mexico, and basically their their ship capsized, and you know it went down. But like you know, all this is all caught on footage, um, and it's like posted to this 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 account. And then you know, like what follows is like people start getting identified online, and then you have this kind of back and forth between. Um, People apologizing, but then some people are not sincere. Um, you know, the, the thing that kind of really just is not bizarre, but is is um, kind of worth mentioning. You know, this kind of healthcare, the, the people, specifically people in the healthcare field, right? Like going out. Um, there's a, there was a conversation around like colonization, right? So like it's like it was primarily white gays going to Mexico, um, right? That that is also part of this conversation, right? So it's like. Um, literally taking disease with you. Um, but, but the kind of interesting piece for me, and there's a kind of conversation that I think has, has been more forcefully articulated over the past month or so, is, is 
is similarly, and maybe not kind of collapsible to the conversation we, you were just, we were just having about Lady G, but this conversation around shame, right? So like, what is the use of shame in uh, exposing people, um, people who are partying or people who are um, not following guidelines and, you know, ultimately putting other people at risk, right? Um, either their family or the people that they encounter when they're out traveling. Um, and there's something to be said because this is a, you know, shame has always been a, a tactic uh, of kind of sexual shaming, right? So like the, there's a kind of piece here that is also uh, in conversation with an iteration of shame during the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, right? In the eighties, right? That, that shame and stigma were closely associated with the virus were closely associated with people who were either exposed or who were positive or seroconverting, right? So there's, there's, this, there's this ongoing conversation, I think, among uh, kind of varying points in the discussion about the use of shame and whether or not like an account like Days Over COVID, for instance, uh, is, is merely reproducing, you know, this kind of shame and stigma that was ultimately weaponized against the very communities that it's now exposing. Um, so, you know, there's like this like this layered conversation, I think, because on the one hand, it's like, I'm sitting here in central Illinois, it's cold as fuck. I want to be somewhere warm. I want to be on a beach. I want to be drinking with my friends. And I want to be, I want to be in the club. As we just said, I missed a club. So like, Ugh. I want to be there. Um, but I'm not. Uh, I have made that decision. Um, I, I have very limited contact with the outside world. And, you know, it is like, it, it annoying because I do follow that account and I do see people, you know, and they're just like out in these parties. And not, I'm not saying I want to go to a circuit party. I do not want to go to a circuit party, but I want to be out and I would like to be partying. Um, and to just like see the, just the, 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 what is the word I'm looking for? Help me out, James. Like the, on like the, it's because privilege is, is too simple. It's like a, like a, like we just don't give a fuck attitude. I don't know. Um, it's, it's annoying. It hurts because I want to be yeah. doing those things. And it's like, I do want you to feel something because like that's shitty. Right. But also mm -hmm. there's this other part and this other piece where it's like, you know, what is actually the utility of shame in especially conversations within kind of sexually minoritized communities, right? That is that is equally as layered, it is double down layered when we start talking about people of color, right? Like queer people of color, right? That, that shame and stigma actually still operate and are weaponized against queer, black and brown and immigrant and poor people today. And that it like can surface or it looks differently for people who are traveling or their circuit parties, right? So, th so there's these kind of like these multi-layers, these scales um, through which shame and stigma are still operating. And so, you know, uh, personally, I feel like I want to say shame and stigma has no place, um, but also fuck those people. Like I, I want to, I want to have a drink on the beach too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I, that was, yeah, there's a lot there. I've been, it's of a piece, I think, with a thing I've maybe we've talked about uh, before, which is just like, I am really fascinated by the discourse of personal responsibility in the pandemic. Mm. And so this is sort of like, yeah, like what, 
I think that this is hard. The, the sort of gaze over COVID piece is hard because it feels so frivolous and it feels like this is a thing you could have avoided doing. Like there's all kinds of ways that we are sort of being made to feel personally responsible for the pandemic that feel, for example, like shaming students for going out when they have to be at college all day, every day, right? Feels like it misunderstands the kind of like social structure and pressures and also like what it means to be in this moment where we're sort of existing without guidelines and without a clear sense of the temporality mm -hmm. of how long we're going to be here or and so you know like all that on the one hand makes me share with you the sort of reluctance to shame anyone because it feels like there what does it matter at this point like what what does personal responsibility even look like in the middle of a poly pocket like we're all just sort of trapped here trying to figure out sense and rules and it doesn't feel like sniping at each other is going to help. But at the exact same time, like gaze over COVID I think works because it highlights such a like linchpin of gay culture that is also so deeply frivolous. It's like, there's just no real argument to be made that you have to be on a beach in Mexico. Like it just, it's not life-saving. You don't actually need it any more than I need it. Like, and I need it in my soul. Like we've been talking for the last 20 minutes about how we both just love to go to the club, but like I, and, and but, but I'm not willing to risk the lives of other people. I mean, you know, asymptomatic spread, we've been doing this for a year. Like we're not going to explain to each other asymptomatic spread again. It's like, it's not just about you. It's about every person you will come into contact with along the way. And so it feels like when those are the terms of figuring out what is and isn't appropriate engagement, like things that feel like the first thing you would cut off your list of optional activities like people doing all of that just seems like such a slap in the face right and then we had the the super bowl right this past weekend Twenty five thousand goddamn people, people in the a fucking football game right it's I mean, like it's just, oh so y'all don't care about ct anybody y'all don't care about the abused women y'all don't uh, care about the racist nfl who ran a social right. justice commercial about how they're fixing the problem y'all don't care about colin kaepernick y'all don't care about how tom brady is a trumpy nothing none of it met Twenty five thousand of you collected yourselves mm. into florida of all places to watch those men put a ball through their legs and then hit each other. Cool, enjoy your Rona though. It, a mess, an absolute mess. Like, can I just get okay. my vaccine please? Can I please? Right, truly. Uh, and it's 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 starting to roll out here at UIUC, <sighs> which is exciting. I, I mean, I it, it, it's tears, it's tears, but you know, it's, it's starting. So hopefully come spring, late spring, early summer, I will be vaccinated. Um, yeah. Last question. Um, what are you reading? Oh, palate cleanser. I'm reading good things. Uh, so I'm reading some new, fresh, exciting YA from, well, fresh and exciting, but maybe not so new. Uh, I'm reading Alice Childress's work. Alice Childress is a big deal. She wrote plays in the 70s and poems throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s. And she's like a luminary figure in Black literature who often doesn't get enough study and shine. So here in Black History Month, if you're looking for a Black author to read, Alice Childress, she's amazing. Uh, you should start with her plays because they're great. But I am not reading her plays. I'm reading her young adult novels. And specifically, I'm reading the one that that I never did get around to reading 1982's Rainbow Jordan. It's complicated and messy and charming and 
um, charming is maybe the wrong word because it's dark in a way that you expect from YA about black people, but man, it's got things to say and feels about how we should take young adults seriously and has been phenomenal fodder for this chapter and I'm writing in a beautiful direction and I'm excited to be working alongside it. And so that is very cool and very fun. Uh, and then when I need a palate cleanser from the writing reading that I'm doing, uh, I've gotten really into like the trend, the sort of, I think relatively recent trend of like dual authored memoirs. Uh, and so I don't know, I'm doing a little bit of digging to find out if this is actually a new, new thing, but there have been over the last like three or four years, like a bunch of dual authored memoirs and they're always really fascinating. Uh, and so I had, I have on my shelf still Big Friendship, which is the one from Amina Tuso and Ann Friedman, the author of the host of Call Your Girlfriend, the podcast. Um, but I'm reading right now, Black, White, and the Gray, which is Mishama Bailey. And, oh, let me just get it because I don't remember his name. The white man she worked with. Um, John O. Morisano. And Mishama Bailey is the chef at the Gray, the restaurant in Savannah that has been getting all that press and they're apparently opening one in Vegas. And it is, it's an extraordinary piece of food writing in that it's not really mm. a piece of food writing. It's like a memoir about the experience of like opening a restaurant and trying to sort of contend with the legacy of food and race in the South uh, and what it means to be a sort of black woman working for, or like in partnership with a white man, but he's the sort of financier of the situation. And so you are the creativity, he is the wallet. And how does that relationship work? Uh, it's honest and mm -hmm. searing and complicated and messy and I highly recommend it. Noted. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Uh, that that all sounds like you you're being fulfilled on multiple fronts. Oh, I love when good people write interesting things. Absolutely lovely. <sighs> how about you, friend? What are you reading? What's how's this giant stack of books going? It is going. I am a little behind on my syllabus, um, this, the one that I set out for myself. Uh, but this week, the kind of highlight for me has been this uh, monograph by Chris Barstelos, and it is called Distributing Condoms and Hope, The Racialized Politics of Youth Sexual Health. Uh, and it is an excellent kind of sociological uh, take on the kind of sexualized, racialized project of youth, um, of, of youth kind of sexual education in the U.S. Um, and it's just, it's so good. And uh, it's, it's an ethnography. So, you know, that I have an affinity for ethnographies and it's just really detailed and kind of theoretically sophisticated. And it, it, it is also informing how I'm thinking about, you know, some of the, some of my own research, um, and it's, it's relatively recent. It was actually came as a recommendation from a colleague here at UIUC. Um, and I don't know how I hadn't read uh, Barcelos's work uh, prior to this, but I mean, I'm really excited and I'm hoping to actually connect with this author because um, there's a few questions that I have that I feel like I might be able to um, ask directly. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's well-written. Um, I think I'm going to be Kind of sticking with it for a while just because I, I like the way that it's kind of structured um, in terms of its ethnographic approach. And so, yeah, I mean, overall, 10 for 10, I would recommend. And yeah, other than that, like I would say that that's kind of my highlight, other than uh, highlight with reading anyway. Um, certainly, I've been in the throes of journal articles as well, um, but I don't want to bore you with that. So, uh, 
I recommend I love that. I yeah. love that. That sounds very. That sounds very interesting. I might actually steal that from you. I'm for unrelated reasons. So uh, we're kind of rounding out the podcast for today. Um, as you mentioned earlier, it is Black History Month, um, and today Disney Plus just released the Rogers and Habers Hammerstein's Cinderella, starring none other than Brandy and the iconic legend Whitney Houston that is now streaming. And I think that's what I'm going to do this weekend is give myself uh, some time to revisit this version of Cinderella. Um, I'm so excited that this is happening. It's multi Cinderella. I'm so excited. I'm so excited this is happening. I I have a... (laughs) I will share this with you and I suppose our listener that I remember uh, when the when the when we first arrived in the Polly Pocket back last March and we were all trapped inside our homes. I discovered a really poor copy of this streaming on YouTube and I did watch all of it at four o'clock in the morning and I did cry. And Aww. it's so good. It's so it is good. so good. We had it on VHS. Oh, I had it on VHS. I don't know. It's I didn't so even good. know where that would be. Also, um, Prince Charming still hot. Is he? I need to, to look him up. Yeah, hold mm. up. Love that. Well, friend, I think we've concluded today's episode. I want to say that I love you. I appreciate you. And I am just so honored to know you and to have conversations with you. Oh, friend, I love you too. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your work. Sounds good. Uh, Till next time. Till next time. Till next time.